This is an ABC podcast. Basically, food is becoming extinct. So if you don't have the food that you need to create a certain type of traditional Melanesian dish, then you just don't have that food anymore. You, you don't have that culture anymore. You don't have that culture linked to it and the stories linked to it and the, the social collecting activities that go around it. What have you eaten so far today? Was it something you grew or raised? Something you cooked from scratch? Or was it packaged up before it was imported from another country and delivered to your local shop? Living in Australia, I don't get to enjoy the amazing local foods that I grew up eating. Things like pandanas or karuka or the asbin. I miss that. And even people who live in the Pacific, in the very village they grew up in, are experiencing big changes to what they eat and where their food comes from. So do you miss the traditional ingredients and cooking in a clay pot instead of on a gas stove? And is it important to reclaim some of those traditions? My guests today will tell you, yes, it's so important for your health, your local economy, and even for biodiversity. I'm Hilda Wayne. Sisters, let's talk to Jennifer Buying about taking back our culinary traditions. Jennifer Bang is a household name in PNG as the host of Cafe New Guinea, which showcases the unique cuisines from across the country. She is a passionate advocate for the slow food movement and the co-founder of Save Papua New Guinea, a non-profit that encourages Melanesians to preserve their culinary traditions. So where did her love for food come from? Well, I think my love for food and cooking started um, when I was quite young. My my father moved my mother and I to the Markham back to um, my father's village when I was quite young. I was four years old because he was thinking of running for politics at the time. So he had to be there three years in the village before he could run for any political position. So he he moved my mother and I there, there from Port Moresby and I grew up there with my grandmother going to the gardens and cooking in the traditional clay pots. And I think one of one of the most vivid memories I have of that is her cooking with this very old sweet potato seed, which was actually purple. The cow itself or the sweet potato was purple. And I remember the clay pot with all the coconut cream and the bright purple sweet potato in there with the, you know, the purple soup and everything. And that was one of my um, very early memories of traditional cooking with my grandmother. And um, I think she played a really big role in my interest in traditional food and traditional cooking and gardening and everything here in PNG. So I have my grandmother to thank for that. That is a a big mark that your grandmother had on you. How about your mum? How did she adjust to living in the village in Papua New Guinea? Oh, mum was great. I mean, she's she's a very humble person and she's a great gardener as well. So I learned a lot about gardening from my mother. She loves flowers and um, spends a lot of her time out in the garden walking around barefoot. And I remember um, she had this little garden and this sort of gully where it was nice and, uh, you know, Markham can be quite dry. So she had this really beautiful little gully where there were all these wet pit pit were and she would plant all the different herbs and things down there. So mum had a, a very um, big impact, especially on, on my interest in gardening because she, wherever we went, she'd always make a beautiful garden. From that humble experience, you went on to completing your education and tell us about how you got into the industry. 
Um, so I was down in Australia and I, I, I firstly studied in international business um, and then I did another year in environmental economics and finally decided to finish my degree in applied science and fisheries because I just, I just loved the sea and I, you know, I sort of had this vision, a young vision of being and living by the sea and, you know, observing the coral reefs and all that sort of thing. But, you know, unfortunately it didn't go that way. It sort of went more towards um, looking towards sustainability and contributing back more to communities uh, more voluntarily and I think that really that really took place um, when I went to Costa Rica um, as a volunteer because I, I couldn't get work here in PNG working on a particular leatherback program that I wanted to which is actually here in Morabe at Labu and uh, I applied and I went to Costa Rica as a volunteer, as a research assistant. And it wasn't until I was working with a few volunteers on the beach, picking up rubbish on the beach there, that this uh, th this moment, just these words were just spoken to me, like just saying, uh, you're here picking up rubbish, but you don't have any rubbish to pick up in your own country. You know, those sort of words came to me very strongly. And I thought to myself, yeah, that's very true. You know, here I am volunteering in another country when I should probably just be doing this back at home because God knows we need change in our country. So, you know, that really drove me to come back. And it wasn't until I was I came back to um, Port Moresby and I was doing volunteer work. Just basically I told a group of my friends just to come with me down to the beach and let's just go pick up rubbish and start cleaning up on Ella Beach because it was just a really big mess at the time. And a lot of the surrounding villages um, were throwing a lot of rubbish into the, the ocean there. So we were just cleaning up. And one afternoon there was um, a fellow called David Peter who was down at the end of the beach and he sort of called me over and said, oh, you know, what are you doing? He's just curious about what we were doing. And I told him and he said, why don't you come into the office tomorrow? I work with the Worldwide Fund for Nature and there is a position open for a, a marine program officer. So that was how I got, you know, my first job um, here up in PNG. Where does the food connection come in here? You know, we look forward to every every episode, you you know, when you come on TV. And it's just absolutely fascinating how you bring all the cuisines together every, you know, every time, every week. From that position to uh, working with food and people in the villages, tell us about that. The idea behind promoting food in Papua New Guinea was to actually um, bring people and give people a positive perspective of Papua New Guinea because we get a lot of very negative press around PNG and, you know, in fact, it scares people away from visiting the country. So we just wanted to use food as a, as a window into our communities and our people in Papua New Guinea so we could showcase the diversity of food, the people, how friendly we are, how welcoming we are, our, you know, our natural hospitality in Papua New Guinea. We really wanted to just showcase that to the world so that people would know that, PNG for what it really is through our eyes. And not only did you educate, you know, the world and people outside, but also us in Papua New Guinea as well. I didn't know how, you know, people from, say, Milan Bay cooked or in Moro Bay, in, in the lovely clay pots, how people use clay pots, because as you know, in the highlands, we don't have clay pots. So it was just amazing to see the different cooking methods that you've actually brought, you know, educated the, the, the country with your amazing shows. Tell us about the slow food movement. What is it? 
Right. So the slow, slow food movement focuses on many different areas, but especially it focuses on preserving different foods and tastes and flavors and good, clean and fair food, food that's fair. And it focuses on food sovereignty, uh, people having the right to determine their own food systems. And that's through the uh, work we were doing through the food and PNG, we were able to, uh, through our funders at the time, connect us through with the um, the slow food movement um, that's basically started out in Italy. And so what it really aims towards is that throughout the world, there's a lot of um, food extinction going on. There's a lot of uh, particular seeds or flavors. Say one family may have looked after a particular yam and, you know, when the great grandfather or the grandfather passed away, nobody took care of that yam anymore. And basically that that seed just died. So it, it's all linked towards uh, preserving food and nutrition security and preserving seeds, uh, food diversity, dietary diversity. So it, it promotes food in a way that ensures that the future security of these different foods and flavors and, you know, these banks of nutrients, which are getting lost nowadays because um, people are just, they're only focused on eating a certain few food groups. And you, you'll notice that the the food diversity is just, it's decreasing every, every year. So that movement is really about preserving the food in this world, preserving the flavors and inspiring people to, to take care of those, uh, those parts of our cultures because they're dying. You made a documentary series about food in Papua New Guinea, and it's such a success, even with with your you know regular episodes, the TV programs on MTV way back then, and um, that you expanded that idea to uh, Melanesia uh, Pacific. Why is that important to do? I think it's really important to do so that we can see the similarities in our cultures. Um, you know, say Vanuatu is a different country. It's uh, Solomon Islands is, a, is another country of its own. But you can see through the food and some of the cooking methods how we are still very much the same with our cultures and our customs. And you can see that link. And it really highlights that link through through the food. And it, it's also a way of bringing us together and seeing and knowing and understanding each other and knowing, knowing more, more about each other because, you know, some of us may not have the opportunity to travel to some of our fellow Melanesian countries and see what types of foods we have. And, and I guess sometimes there is more of a focus on Polynesia instead of Melanesia. So we really wanted to highlight um, the Melanesian culture as well in the Pacific. This movement has taken root all over the Pacific now. How does that make you feel to see that? Well, I'm really happy to see that it's inspired people to take, you know, take pride in their own food culture and their own customs and cultures around food and how important it is to maintain those those relationships because a lot of the, the customary and, and social structures of our communities are are all focused around food and food activities, you know, feasting, whether it's a funeral or whether it's bride price or whether it's just an, an initiation or something like that in the community. Everything's, you know, it focuses around food and certain uh, types of foods. It could be yam, it could be taro, it could be pigs. It's really important for us to maintain this and and especially in the Melanesian culture. So I'm really happy that if it's inspired others throughout the region that, you know, to go back to their local foods. And that's really important because in, in this day and age, um, with all the um, 
processed foods around, we've really forgotten about those foods that really made us strong people in the first place and healthy. And we had longevity as well. And now with all these processed foods coming in, people are losing their lives very young, extremely young. You know, there's been a lot of people around my age group, even younger, um, passing away. So due to all these uh, non-communicable diseases. So it's really important that we go back to our original foods and eat healthy, live long lives and live happy lives. We've done a, a specific episode on diabetes in the Pacific, and that's a very important point that you just raised. What kind of threats to traditional delicacies in Melanesia should we be aware of? The threats are, you know, say maybe over, overfishing of a certain type of, you know, fish that a clamshell or something like that, that might be a traditional food. The threats to those delicacies are if people are not replanting or taking care of those seeds, they can just, you know, basically food is becoming extinct. So if you don't have the food that you need to create a certain type of dish, traditional Melanesian dish, then you just you just don't have that food anymore. You, you don't have that culture anymore. You don't have that culture linked to it and the stories linked to it and the, and the you know, the, the social, you know, collecting activities that go around it. So it's not just... It's not just the food you're losing, but you're losing everything that goes along with that as well. So that's the risk that we have there. And not to mention the health benefits that come with some of these foods that we we used to eat a lot in our diets. And you and I know about our, you know, beloved Karoka and Marita, the pandanas. Oh, Marita? Marita, the pandanas, the juice from the pandanas and the Karoka from the islands which is not usually cultivated, it's in the big jungles and high hope. Uh, mm. The Marita and the Karoka is still going strong. People are replanting it because there's actually a market value for Marita and Karuka. So you'll see that, especially when you travel up and down the Highlands Highway, at a certain time of the year, they'll be selling Marita on the side of the road. So a lot of those types of traditional delicacies now, especially in PNG, you know, we love our food so a lot of these traditional types of food plants are still being cultivated and still protected because people still enjoy eating them. So that's why it's important to promote our food so that we still keep our people's interest up in our traditional foods because it actually creates a, a local market for us here. So you'll find that things like Marita and Karuka, when they're in season, they are bountiful in all the markets. Yeah, I mean, it's it's predominantly just the highlands with the Karuka but now it's it's really popular everywhere. I mean, people take it from from the highlands to the coast to Port Moresby. It's just yeah, it's just a wonderful um, traditional food that, that we have. It's mainly in the highlands, but also in Morobe Province because we we are quite a large province and we have mountainous regions as well. So mm. we have different types of karuka here in Morobe, and we have the different types of marita as well. So there's a marita culture and a karuka culture as well in Morobe province as well. Wow, that's amazing. And what's the taste like? Are they similar? Very similar, very similar. Up in Menyamia and also in the Garena Valley, they have very, very, very big karuka nuts. They're, They're probably two or three times the size of the ones up in the highlands. Wow. That's new to me. That's amazing. Yeah, very interesting. How important is it for us to continue to use uh, traditional ingredients in our cooking? Well, it's extremely important because if we don't continue to maintain our desire to eat our local foods, uh, we'll be more and more dependent on imported foods. And 
that becomes very unsafe when you look at climate change and, you know, droughts in other countries where they may be producing rice or flour or, you know, recently we had the, we have all this disturbance going on in Russia and all that area up there, you know, with the wheat so in, in Ukraine. So um, it's very important that we continue to maintain the uh, supply and the demand for our local foods because that means that our farmers you know, 80% of this country will continue producing those foods so that we can feed ourselves. You know, if we if we don't encourage and maintain that, then we run the risk of being more dependent on imported foods. And that 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 on a more global perspective puts us in a very risky situation if we're not producing enough of our own food to feed ourselves. You're listening to Sisters Let's Talk with me, Hilda Wayne. I'm speaking to Papua New Guinean Jennifer Bai. She's the host of Cafe New Guinea and an advocate for the slow food movement. She says, as women, we have a big role to play in preserving our vibrant food traditions. Uh, women play an immense role in this country. I mean, around the world, really, of preserving food. They, you know, often are the ones that are storing the seeds and sharing them, you know, with their family members or extended family or, you know, through intermarital relations, they share those different seeds and, you know, teach each other how to plant them. Quite often you see the men will look after a particular plant, say if it's yam or if it's taro, men will play a role of caring for a particular type of seed or a particular type of plant. But women really play a, a huge role in food security and the protection of those seeds. You know, women are obviously weighed down with other jobs and chores during the day, but they play a very big role in protecting our food, food security and our, our seed diversity in the country. You own a catering company with your family and you're also very much involved in doing educational programs about traditional food and cooking. That has been almost over 10 years now, I think. And what are traditional food and cooking methods? Why are they important? They're very important because they they give different flavors to foods and a different depth to the food that you get out of just cooking in a saucepan on gas. So you'll find that eating food that's cooked in a clay pot is very, very different than eating food that's been cooked on a gas stove in, a, in an aluminium pot or uh, eating food that's been cooked in, you know, in the mumu or eating, you know, the East New Britain food, which is the aigir. The, there's different flavours and tastes involved in that, different leaves that they use to infuse flavours into the food. So it's really, it's really important to maintain this because, you know, that, that's, that's part of creating memories and it's part of who we are. We we love to eat. I think all Pacific Island, all people love to eat, but, you know, especially here, we love to come together in big, you know, gatherings and share food and enjoy each other's company. Yeah, it's, it just brings family together. And I must tell you, I just love the taste of food from fire. So I don't know, somehow it's just, it's just added some kind of punch to the food. And uh, yeah, I miss that. 
it's the best. And, you know, the um, bamboo cooking as well, you know, stuffing all the different leaves in there, some mm. chicken and different flavors into the bamboo and roasting it on the fire and then, you know, eating. It's also really healthy because you don't need to use cooking oil or anything like that to cook with. It's just the the food's natural juices cook themselves. And, um, yeah, it's just like steaming your food. So there are also much healthier methods of cooking as well. Okay, I didn't have lunch. I mean, big lunch. So I'm getting angry now. <laughs> <laughs> Being part of slow food movement, how important is it to introduce unique Pacific food to international audiences such as this at that sort of level of um, international exposure? Well, I think it's really important because we've got so many different unique foods in in Papua New Guinea and Melanesia that haven't been exposed to the greater market you know we've got things like breadfruit we have you know like you said the marita we have different types of mushrooms that haven't been explored yet or you know we've got so many different leaves that you can eat here in this country uh different types of seafoods that we could export you know traditional salts we make traditional salts in png there's so many we've got like gullip nuts all sorts of delicious foods that we could actually grow very easily in our country because they're indigenous foods. They grow naturally in our environments here, but we need to create markets uh, for us to be able to sell these products out to the international market. And a lot of them have very high nutritional value as well, especially the Marita. The Marita is known to be, you know, it has anti-cancer properties. And actually in Indonesia, they downstream process it into a fruity sort of drink that you can drink as a vitamin supplement. Wow. So there's a lot of yeah, there's a lot of things that we could do to develop our own food industry here in PNG, but also uh, with more scientific studies, study the different, you know, chemical components of our foods and nutritional, you know, values of our food so that we can even medicinal that we can share with other countries. But we're not we're not investing enough into our own indigenous foods and sharing those with the world. So I, I see that often we're just focusing on things like cocoa and coffee and coconut and not even enough on coconut. But, yeah, we really need to invest more into it because it creates opportunities for our farmers to be able to market their foods and to be able to also earn an income. What an amazing journey with food and your love and passion for food. You've been working in this with grassroots, uh, with your passion for cooking and food. How did this influence you into getting into politics? Well, I mean, I think politics has been something that I've been involved in the whole way through. So 2012 was the first time I ran for the elections. You know, I just, I here in the Markham district, I just noticed that just things weren't getting done, like basic things, water supply, uh, basic training and downstream processing. Um, we still, a lot of us don't have, you know, power running into our villages, even though we have the big power pylons running through our land. And my father's also been involved with politics. And so I sort of grew up in it as well. So, I mean, I didn't really aim um, from the get-go to become a politician, but I just thought, well, you know, I need to get in there as well and see what we can do with the funds that are made available from the government to make a change down at the ward level. So I started getting more involved in politics than what I used to. And um, I ran in 2012 here in the Markham District and came fifth. And 
Admittedly, I didn't do enough awareness is what I should have done before I actually got into the game. I should have been more out uh, walking out more with the, in all the villages and the wards, visiting the people, talking to them, getting to know them um, before I ran. So I ran 2012. I sat out 2017 because my father ran here for the Markham Open seat in 2017. So I just supported him with that and then decided that in 2022 I would run for the regional seat because my father ran again here in Markham for the Markham Open seat as well. Jennifer comes from a political dynasty. Both Jennifer's father, Andrew Byng, and her father-in-law, Dr. John Weichel, are former members of parliament. So as a foray into politics, been because of her family background, or did she have to earn her place? Well, I, I spent a lot of time. I didn't want to be a fly-in, fly-out politician, so I spent a lot of time just um, visiting people in the communities, walking out to their villages. If it took me four days to walk out there, I'd walk out there and go and stay with them talk to them, educate them on what world development planning is and how that currently we weren't we weren't budgeting properly in the province from the ward level up. So I would walk out to those um, areas, travel by sea, um, you know, walk or travel by land cruiser and then walk and just um, educate the community. So Morabit province is the largest province in Papua New Guinea and it's also very geographically challenging. So a lot of places that I visited were um, like landlocked. Um, you have Garena that's landlocked. You can only fly in and uh, either walk out. So I, I spent time up there as well. Siasi uh, Island, which is obviously, it's, you know, it's cut off by sea and it's one of the least developed um, LLGs in Morabe province. And you have um, Kabum as well. You have up there use. LLG, which is also landlocked as well. There's no roads in or out of there. And so I really traveled around. I wanted the people to get to know me personally. I wanted them to know who I was and, you know, what I stood for and to have them feel comfortable with me, seeing me as uh, a potential leader for them. So I spent that time out there with them, getting to know them. Uh, I thought that was really important. I didn't want to just be like, oh, yes, my father is a former politician and just because of my name, that's why I'm running. But I wanted them to get to know me for me. And what are you up to now with uh, work and family? Well, at the moment, I'm just having a bit of downtime, you know, spending time with my children, making sure they're all okay. And, you know, obviously after the whole election period, I was away from home a lot. So just making sure I'm spending time with them, taking them back and forth from school and, um, yeah, just getting refocused on, you know, any projects that I want to do again in the future here in Morabir or in the country Many are saying, you know, that there is a possibility of you making it through and winning the next time. Is that something you still have on your mind? Well, most definitely. I mean, I don't want to give up. People have to get to know you. So it takes time for that to happen. And, you know, unfortunately, there's a very negative stigma attached to women, you know, and I got a lot of negative Facebook, you know, challenges coming up. But, you know, it helps you to build, a, you know, a tough skin. You just have to look past that and just believe that, you and your team can bring change to the people and just stay positive that, you know, eventually we will get enough people in our government that uh, have the same vision to transform this country into what it was always meant to be. And I really believe very strongly that agriculture and fisheries are the key to that. Thank you so much to Jennifer Byng for being my special guest today. 
Thank you so much for joining me. Hilda Wayne for Sisters Let's Talk on ABC Radio Australia, a weekly show by Pacific Islands Women for Pacific Islands Women, where we get together to talk about the issues that are important to us. If you've missed an episode of the show, catch up on our podcast. In the Pacific, just search for Sisters Let's Talk wherever you get your podcasts. If you're in Australia, you can listen to Sisters Let's Talk on the ABC Listen app. If you've got a topic you'd like me to cover on the show or any feedback, I'd love to hear from you. Send me a message anytime at the ABC Radio Australia Facebook page or email sisters at abc.net.au. That is sistas at abc.net.au. Next time on Sisters Let's Talk, how easily can a woman go from living a comfortable life to having no money for food or home or to care for her family? When the son uh, married and the father figure was no longer around, her original house built by her spouse was now occupied by the uh, son and the daughter-in-law. And uh, there was a makeshift corrugated iron uh, house that she was sent to. You know, the conditions of the, the shack itself with no one coming to provide food and all that, she was left in a very destitute situation. What makes women vulnerable to poverty? That's next time on Sisters Let's Talk. Sisters Let's Talk is presented and produced by me, Hilda Wayne. Our supervising producer is Kim Lester. Executive producer is Inga Stunsner. Our commissioning editor is Ilaria Walker. Sisters Let's Talk is an ABC Radio Australia production. I'm Tasol Nabungimu next time. <laughs>